So I want to do something a, a little different over the next uh, coming five services that we'll be together. What I would like us to do is to spend some time and journey together those last ten days of Christ's life before the cross. The time leading up and including Resurrection Sunday. Now, it's going to be impossible to, given our time frame, to touch on every little aspect and every little event. So there will be homework. And you heard that right. There will be homework. But I want to invite you to join me together as in our next five times together we journey to the cross. Let's open in prayer. Father, we thank you for this morning, for this opportunity to gather. And Father, as we gather, we come as individuals with our own set of concerns and events that have happened over the past week. And Father, for both anxieties and and, and anticipation of the week to come. But as we pause for this time this morning to peer into your word, we ask that you will Help our minds to be settled and rested and focused. Father, we ask that you'll speak to us this morning. We thank you for the cross and for all that it means. We thank you for the opportunity to join you and and to journey along through your scripture to those last days that you walked this earth before you gave yourself a ransom for us. And Father, then three days later, triumphantly rose again. We thank you for that. For that brings us peace and our salvation. And Father, for that, we'll be eternally grateful. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so over the, here's your homework. Just start off with homework right away. I know teachers usually wait to the end. But here's your homework to start with. Sometime this week, I have homework at the end too, don't worry. But sometime this week, I want you to open up your Bible, turn to Luke 19, and I want you to read the first 27 verses. So verses 1 through 27. It's there in 1 through 27. It's that passage that serves as a bit of a background for the 10 days, but also a bit of a background for this morning's message. In the passage, you'll witness Zacchaeus' salvation. You also find that Jesus frames his ministry early on in the chapter. He gives us his mission to seek and to save the lost. And it's there that he begins his journey from Jericho to Jerusalem. Now, the largest part of the passage is spent in what you would refer to as the parable of the ten minus. It teaches us important truths concerning the kingdom of God. And the parable serves to correct those because there were those in the midst of Christ's disciples, that larger group, that had expectations of a physical kingdom to come at that time. Well, this morning we can only briefly summarize the parable. I do so by beginning in Luke chapter 19. So if you'll join me there, Luke chapter 19. Verse 14, we read this. A noble man went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas. That's about the equivalency of about three months of wages. And he said to them, engage in business until I come. 
However, not everyone was thrilled with the would-be king. In verse 14 we read, But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. So on his return from this tripper's excursion, for him to come back to receive the kingdom, he then calls the servants to give an account before him. Two of the servants were very diligent. They had used the money as instructed and they had earned more money. And for them, there was a commendation. Well done. Then there is one servant who, while he seemingly takes his mina and he puts it in his top drawer with his socks so he wouldn't lose it. Well, he's reprimanded. However, he's allowed to live. And the remaining seven that refused to acknowledge him, that refused to acknowledge the new king and sent out after him, well, they're put to death. A foreshadowing of the final judgment to come. Walter Leefield, in his commentary, he, he, he does a great job in summarizing the parable with three points for us. First, the parable clarifies the time of the appearance of the kingdom. I've often spoke here about the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of God being here, but not yet. See, when you come to faith in Christ, Christ rules in your heart. So we have a deposit of the kingdom, but there's still a physical reign to come. There's still a physical kingdom to come where literally Christ will reign on the earth. So it's here, but it's not yet. The best is to come. Second, it realistically portrays the rejection and future return of the Lord. This foreshadows, the parable of the minus foreshadows the events that were about to unfold in the days of head and the events that would come further down in history. Three, it delineates the role of a disciple in the between time, in between the time of the Lord's departure and then his return. See, each of us have been given, as the servants were given money, each of us are given resources. And with those resources, we can either use them selfishly or we can invest those resources God has given us into the kingdom. That's a short description of the parable of the ten minus. Where Jesus rested that night, remember, as He's telling the parable, He's moving along from Jericho to Jerusalem. Where He rested that night is unknown. But it must have been close to Bethany. See, Sabbath regulations would have stipulated that between 6.15 on Friday evening and 7.30 on Saturday evening would have restricted how far a person could walk. We know that on Saturday evening, Christ shows up in Bethany. Please turn with me to chapter 12 of John. John chapter 12. And in John chapter 12, we are now in Saturday evening. And Christ is in Bethany. Jesus' popularity was immense at this time. He was drawing crowds around him. But as he drew crowds around him, he also drew the ire of the religious leaders. But at the same time, that popularity gave him some protection. 
So Jesus continued to enjoy ample access to the temple, giving him ability to confront the sin and the abuse of the religious leaders of Israel. And his ministry and his proclamation of the kingdom of God, well, it drew many people to believe while repelling others. The recent miracle in Bethany, the raising of Lazarus from the dead, is a great example of this. Many believed on Jesus Christ. But at the same time, he stirred up the proverbial hornet's nest in Jerusalem. Listen as I read from John chapter 11, just a few verses. Many of the Jews, therefore, had come with Mary and had seen what he did, what Jesus had done. And they believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees, so they went to Jerusalem, and told him, and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered, gathered in council and said, What are we to do? For if this man performs many signs, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and they will take away both our place and our nation. And then down to verse 53. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. So the events in Bethany sort of set up for us this showdown of sorts between Jesus and the religious leaders. So in Bethany, Jesus is now a mere 40-minute walk from Jerusalem. So let's think about forests. The Hensel Co-op, north of town on 21, everybody knows where that is, right? You don't? We'll do a tour after church. North end of town, before you get to the feedlot, there's this place called Hensel Co-op. If you were to start at Hensel Co-op and walk down 21 and walk all the way out to, you know where the sign on the south end of town is? It says Lampton Shores, population 10. No, I don't know what it says on the sign. But you know the sign down there just before the forest sign? That's the distance between Bethany and Jerusalem. Jesus is a mere 40-minute walk from Jerusalem. We read in John chapter 12. One of the things we should know, Christ fully knew what he was doing. He wasn't in Bethany by chance. He was in Bethany because he was voluntarily giving his life into the hands of the Pharisees. He knew exactly what the walk from Jericho to Jerusalem would bring. So John chapter 12, verse 1 through 8. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of the many of those was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, here goes Mary again. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said, 
this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was the thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for, a, for, my day, for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. Now, without getting into a long explanation, this is not the anointing from Luke chapter 7. Nor is it the anointing that will happen two days before the crucifixion. The meal here appears to be in honor of Christ. A thank you for raising Lazarus from the dead. And even as we read through those verses, if we go into verse 9, we'll learn a little bit about Lazarus. It looks like Lazarus may have been in seclusion because he'd become a curiosity to the people around him. Verse 9 says this, When the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there in Bethany, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So as they're sitting at this dinner, Martha's serving everybody, and Mary decides to go get some perfume that she had. Some suggest that due to the cost, a year's worth of salary, that this was possibly her dowry. And as Christ reclined at the table eating, she poured some over his feet. Mary's actions broke all kinds of cultural norms. First, touching and washing someone's feet was the job of a servant. Second, a good Jewish girl wouldn't be letting her hair down in public. And then she took her hair and she wiped the feet of Jesus. Her crown of glory, her hair, she wiped the feet of Jesus. Now those watching on as this scene unfolded, well, they would see the whole action as being somewhat undignified. They wouldn't look at it as we do and see it as a, as a humble act of worship. No, they would see it as something very undignified. And as this scene plays out, Judas Iscariot became indignant. In verse 5, that perfume was worth a year's wages. It should have been sold and the money given to the poor. Well, John immediately adds commentary concerning Judas's reaction. Not only was Judas a betrayer, but his concern from the poor was disingenuous. See, as the keeper of the purse... He was more interested in the sale because the sale of the perfume and the deposit of the money into the purse would give him an opportunity to pilfer it. That was his concern. But rather than allow Judas to crush the spirit of Mary, Jesus speaks up in verses 7 and 8. Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you but you do not always have me. Whatever was remaining in the bottle, whatever remained of that perfume was to be left. Left with Mary. And notice how Jesus just accepted the worship. And then His final words in verse 8 foreshadow the events to come. You will not always have me. So in this stop on our journey, what can we learn from this 
meal in Bethany on the Saturday evening. Well, first, Judah looked like all the rest of the disciples. For all appearances, he was one of them. No one would look at him and say, oh, that's the betrayer. He looked like everybody else. Today, too often, Christians allow their world, especially younger Christians, allow their world to be rocked every time a Christian celebrity or influencer deconstructs their faith and, and, and leaves Christianity. Scripture warns us of this. In Acts 20, 29, we read, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. So there will be wolves, but those wolves will appear as sheep. Because if they appeared as wolves, it would be too easy for us to spot who they were and the destruction that they would bring. And then in 1 John chapter 2, verses 19, we read this. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be become plain that they, were, they all are not of us. Perseverance. So why do some people leave the faith? Why some people that you would look at and say, oh, yeah, yeah, they love the Lord. And the next thing you know, they've gone through what they're calling deconstruction and they've left. Well, sometimes people leave the faith. They they leave it because of a lack of willingness to submit to God. See, they would rather create a God in their image or should I say, in their imagination rather than submit to God. Many social influencers, music artists, celebrity pastors, or or any person who leaves the faith, don't don't let that rock you. They're asking questions. and, And the questions they ask, though, there are good biblical answers to those questions posed. And from what I've observed... The questions being posed are not new. The answers have been around for many, many years. Others abandon their faith because they desire that Christians would endorse sin. So they leave because they say, well, you don't approve of this lifestyle, you don't approve of that. And they're looking for the church to endorse sin. Unfortunately, some churches are willing to do that. Notice when Judas leaves, when he betrays them. Oh, I'm sure they were hurt and I'm sure they were surprised. But not one disciple abandons their faith. Matter of fact, the vast majority of disciples will in time Die for their faith. Second, Judas thought what Mary was doing was a waste of money, anointing the feet of Christ. I I find it interesting, people's reactions, when they find out that there are Christians who, who tithe, who believe in it, and actually do it. 
And when they find out that there are Christians who give to the Lord's work generously, in their mind they're thinking, well, that new car you're going to miss out on that you could have afforded, or that new truck. Or how about that vacation you're going to miss in March? You know, when winter just seems to drag on and on and on? You could be in Florida. Well, like Mary, giving to the Lord out of a sincere devotion is acceptable worship. Judas lacked an understanding of worship. And Mary's worship cost her. That was a year's worth of wages. But beside where she was, was Lazarus. And Lazarus' resurrection, rising from the dead, cost him too. So he became a walking, talking, breathing testimony to Jesus' power over death, which gained him some fame. But it also drew the attention of those who hated Christ. Look at verses 9 through 11 of John chapter 12. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on the account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away in believing in Jesus. See, the religious leaders already were planning to eliminate Christ. Now Lazarus was added to the list. See, Lazarus was a living and breathing testimony to the power of Messiah. Lazarus was whole and healthy. And the religious leaders had no explanation for that. Well, our journey this morning continues, but now it continues back in Luke chapter 19. So if you'll turn there. It's the next morning in Luke chapter 19. The apostles and the disciples, which can be confusing at times. Because when Scripture references the twelve, or the disciples, at times it's talking about the twelve. In other times it's talking about a much larger group of followers. And on this occasion, let's not forget the curious. Those pilgrims to Passover who arrived early just to go to Bethany to see their latest, the latest attraction of Bethany, Lazarus. Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 28. When he said these things, he went ahead, going to Jerusalem. When he drew near Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, two of the disciples. Let's just pause there for a second. Verse 28 connects us back to the parable of the ten minas and Jericho and the road to Jerusalem. Now, now Luke chooses not to record the events of the night before in Bethany. But Jesus' journey is purposeful. He's purposefully walking towards Jerusalem. And as he continues on his journey, he comes to the Mount Olivet and then he sends two disciples ahead of them. Look at verses 30 and 31. They're going after a colt. Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. 
untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you are untying it, you shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So the disciples obey and find everything just as Jesus had stated. Verses 32 and 34. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. As they were, there, as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. Now it would be easy for us at this portion to mistake our climatic point here in this portion of Scripture. It's a mistake to say on Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry is the climax of what Luke is talking about. After all, people were singing and proclaiming, Messiah is here. But you notice that Luke does not even cover or record for us Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. Follow with me as things build into a crescendo. But that crescendo is not what a lot of people think it is. So as always, a crowd formed. Word had got out Jesus was in Bethany. Lazarus was with them. So you had the healer and you had the one healed together in one place. Verses 35 and 38. And they brought it, the colt, to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice, praising God with a loud voice, for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So so they bring the colt to Jesus, a foal of a donkey. The disciples put a few cloaks on top of the donkey so he can ride on the young animal. And instinctively, the disciples knew something special was to happen here. So Jesus begins to make his way to Jerusalem. And the significance of the event is not lost on the people as he fulfills Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. A colt the foal of a donkey. And not wanting to be outdone by the apostles, the crowds that lined the way began throwing their cloaks down and they began singing. Those who had witnessed the power of Christ these past three years could now see His power over death as they looked at Lazarus. Now they were witnessing as He made His way to Jerusalem to claim His rightful spot. The scene was festive. His popularity was high. The day is filled with lofty expectations. And among the spectators were Pharisees and Sadducees. And they completely understood the messianic overtones to the day. For the Pharisees, something had to be done. Verses 39-40. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, 
Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. See, the Pharisees wanted Jesus to calm the frenzy, but Jesus was having nothing to do with it. See, if the people would not shout, if his people would not shout, creation itself would shout out his praises. See, in the minds of the people, Messiah was here. At last, foreign rule would be overthrown. What they missed, though, was the significance of the foal of a donkey. Jesus had not come on the back of a great stallion that would serve as a war horse. No, he was in the back of a young foal. He was coming in peace. Not as a man of war, but he was coming as Messiah and King nonetheless. From Isaiah 9, 6, we read this. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. See, as Jesus descends down Mount Olivet, that's where we come to our climax. The, the pinnacle point of Jesus going to Jerusalem is not the entrance into Jerusalem. That isn't even recorded for us. The climax can be found in verses 41 through 44. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus shed tears. Tears over the city as it came into view. Among the cheers and the hosannas, Jesus wept. Now perhaps those closest to Him thought that they were tears of joy, that He was swept up in the emotion of the moment. But, but, but listen to His words again. See, his tears were not tears of joy, but of mourning. How I wish today that you of all people would understand the way to peace. But now it is too late, and peace is hidden from your eyes. Before long, your enemies will build ramparts against your walls and encircle you and close in on you from every side. They will crush you into the ground and your children with you. Your enemies will not leave a single stone in place because you did not recognize it when God visited you. See, in the minds of the cheering crowds, the thought was, yeah, it's a warrior. They're over, they're gonna, he's here to overthrow the Romans and all will be well. well. Well, history, they should have known better. That had never worked in the past. Why would it work it now? For centuries, 
The prophets begged the people to listen to the Lord. For centuries, they begged them to trust for his protection. And what did Israel do? Well, Israel made treaties and alliances and compromises with pagan rulers. See, true peace was to be found in a relationship with God. True peace was to be found in dependence upon God. Well, that's not what they did. In Amos 5, 4, and 8, 4 through 8, we read this. Now, this is what the Lord says to the family of Israel. Come back to me and live. Don't worship at the pagan altars at Bethel. Don't go to the shrines of Gilgog or Beersheba. For the people of Gilgal will drag you off into exile. And the people of Bethel will reduce you to nothing. Come back to the Lord and live. Otherwise, he will roar through Israel like a fire, devouring you completely. Your gods in Bethel won't be able to quench the flames. You twist justice, making it a bitter pill for the oppressed. You treat the righteous like dirt. It is the Lord who created the stars, the Pleiades and Orion. He turns darkness into morning and day into night. He draws up water from the oceans and pours it down as rain on the land. The Lord is his name. See, overlooking the city, as Jesus wept, he understood that the people would soon quote from the parable of the ten minus. They would quote Luke 19.14. We don't want this man to rule over us. And then he predicts the coming doom. Sure, he uses a little hyperbolic language, but Jesus is trying to convey the severity of the judgment to come. And in 70 AD, Titus squishes that first rebellion in Judah. And then again in 135 AD, the quelching of the second uprising dashed all hopes for their national dream. Israel's name was blotted out. Her territory was rolled into a new geographical political region to be known as Syria-Palestina. Rome committed genocide as she tried to eradicate the nation from the face of the earth. And repentance had been ignored. William Hendrickson aptly puts it, but up to now, the opposite course has been followed. Instead of penitence, there has been a hardening. Instead of conversion, apostasy. And as always, when sinners harden themselves, God, in turn, hardens them. Listen as I read from Romans chapter 1, verses 18-24, through 24, which speaks to this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. In the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. 
Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged, exchanged the glory of the mortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Jesus came and he wept. He came to bring peace to Israel, and Israel rejected him. But Jesus remained faithful, knowing full well the destination before him, the cross. And while the nation of Israel was lost for now, the cross was a new hope. His sacrificial substitutionary death was the way forward for peace. Peace between God and man. For appeasement of God's righteous wrath towards sin. For all who would believe. Are we like Jesus? Do we have compassion for the lost? Do we look out over our neighbors in our own cities and our own backyards and think, wow, these people do not know Jesus Christ. Their eternity will be separated from love, separated from God. It's easy to shrug our shoulders. We live in an upside-down world where right is wrong and wrong is right. It's difficult. Where God's creation of sex, marriage, and gender and family have been perverted into empty shells of what was intended where justice and human flourishing have been abandoned and replaced with relativism and selfishness. But Jesus looked over Jerusalem. Jesus looked over humanity, and he wept. Think back to the parable, the ten minus. While the king was gone away, and while our king has gone away, You and I have been given gifts, talents, abilities, resources, however you would like to word it. How are you using those? Are you putting those in a top drawer somewhere or on a shelf? Or are you like the first two servants, those commendable servants, investing gifts and talents and abilities and resources into the kingdom, which is also a form of worship. Do we look around the world and do we proclaim the message? Do we see a world that's lost? Or do we simply see a world that is proclaiming as they did in Luke 9.14. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Jesus lived on the earth in the midst of such a generation. But that didn't stop him from being faithful. It didn't stop him from carrying out his mission. Remember what we said his mission was? From Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man came to seek and save those who are lost. 
That is the same mission that you and I are invited to join him in today. Jesus knew his journey was to the cross, but the journey to the cross would bring reconciliation and it would bring peace to all those who would believe. John 3:16 and 17, you know this well. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. I have more homework for you. This coming week, I'd ask that you would go home and just spend some time thinking. And I want you to write down a name or two or three of people that you know that have yet to come to faith in Jesus Christ. And if you don't know one or two or three, then your challenge this week is to get to know some people that aren't saved. And I want you to write their names down and I want you to pray for them. I want you to ask God to show you how you can show love to them. And then I want you to begin to love them. Not judge them. That's up to God. I want you to love them and pray for them. I want you to ask God to show you for, and give you opportunities to witness and testify into their lives. To speak into their lives. And it may take some time. This is not going to be a short adventure. It may be a long adventure. But I firmly believe that as you pray, God will guide and God will give opportunities. Opportunities for you to share the gospel. And you may have to share many times. Opportunities to share with them that they are in need of repentance. That they have sinned as you have sinned. Opportunities to show them that they need a Savior. Will they, will they ever respond? I don't know. That is up to the Lord. But I do know this. That if you do not do that, you will miss out on the privilege of ever being involved with someone who comes to Christ. You will miss out on the privilege and the thrill it is to speak with someone who comes to the first time before the cross and recognizes their need for a Savior. What a blessing to be invited into that moment where God redeems a life that you will miss out on. So this week, how are you using your gifts, your talents, your resources? Using them for the Lord or do you use them just for selfish purposes? There awaits for you such joy to give to the Lord your resources in worship. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love and your goodness. And Father, we thank you for the people that are around us that we know that don't know you. Father, what a privilege we have to join you in your mission to seek and to save the lost. And all that's needed has been done on the cross. And you ask us to go proclaim the message. Father, teach us to love the lost. 
Teach us to be moved by compassion for a world that is upside down and that seems so far from you. Father, that we may go forward in a manner to love the world and to show them their need for repentance and of a Savior. That they'll understand what true love is. That love sent His Son to the cross to pay for our sins. So we thank You for this. We look forward to this opportunity that each of us have to be messengers for You. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.